Hello and welcome to Beyond Biotech podcast number 25. And yes, I know there wasn't one last week. I'm Jim Cornell from LaBiotech. And first, if you're a regular listener, all I can do is apologize because the reason for no podcast last week wasn't because I had no interviews. Far from it. It was because I had just arrived home from a trip to Strasbourg for Biofit. And to get back, it meant a 4 a.m. bus from Strasbourg to Frankfurt Airport. So by the time I got home late in the day, it was either spend six hours on the podcast or sleep. And I was at that kind of stage where I was so tired that you make stupid mistakes and things that are supposed to be automatic cease to be automatic. So had I done the podcast, I might have recorded it backwards and had it sound like a piece of music by Stockhausen. But thanks to the folks at Biofit for being so helpful and friendly. I really enjoyed moderating a session as well. That was fun and getting to meet lots of new people. And of course, Strasbourg itself. It was my first visit to the city and what a beautiful place it is. It also calls itself the capital of Christmas and it's not hard to see why with all the buildings decorated and a market that seems to go on forever. If you don't like crowds, maybe not the place for you. I hope I'll be back, although next year's Biofit is in Marseille, which isn't the capital of Christmas, although I do think it's called the world water capital. Speaking of water, it hasn't been wet here, just cold, down to minus five last night. It wasn't pleasant, but it does make me wonder how I survived so many Canadian winters where minus five could be considered a heat wave in some months. Well, I should get to this week's podcast, and there are three interviews this week. One is from BioEurope, and it's a chat with Transgene Chief Business Officer Stephen Bloom. And we also have conversations with Humasite CEO Laura Nicholson and with Anthony McDonnell, Senior Policy Analyst at the Centre for Global Development on the subject of antimicrobial resistance. And we also have our weekly chat with global commercial real estate services company JLL with Travis McReady. And ironically, as I just mentioned Canada, that's where he is this week. Now it's time for the news you may have missed over at lebiotech.eu. Kintor Pharma says its alopecia primary endpoint was met. The first subject was dosed in an inflammation phase 1 study and Farron Pharmaceuticals provided an update on its cancer treatment. Bactobio has raised £6 million to search for new antimicrobials. Researchers in Singapore have developed an affordable cancer testing method and we had our roundup of the biggest private biotech investments in November 2022. There were positive results announced from BioAge's muscle trial, the discovery of new brain tumour subtypes may help develop treatments for incurable brain cancer, and Pictor received $5 million in funding for a COVID antibody test and its human and animal portfolios. Avalon BioVentures is investing in early-stage biotech. Intact Bio launched with $81 million to develop precision medicines, and Inspire has been created to develop an inhaled gene therapy for the treatment of lung cancer. The FDA cleared an insulin pen medical device. Scientists identified a genetic variant causing ALS in some patients, and Bivictrix picked its development lead for an ADC cancer program. 
PacBio and the Boston Children's Hospital are set to study the genome to benefit patients. PixelGen technologies emerged to advance single-cell spatial proteomics. And Touchlight and Odima Therapeutics signed a deal to develop personalized cancer therapy. Owlstone Medical launched the Breath Biopsy AOC Atlas, built with diverse breath samples. Ibex and Source announced an agreement to aid pathologists with diagnostic accuracy, and a DNA repair mechanism study could boost cancer treatments. Allergy Therapeutics is moving ahead with peanut and grass pollen allergy trials. Novadip's bone healing trial gave positive results. Scientists in Sweden are using the metabolism as a new method to detect cancers. And Microfluid X raised £3.3 million to develop advanced therapy manufacturing platforms. You can read all of these and lots more at labiotech.eu. So now it's time for the interviews. As part of the humanitarian aid effort, U.S. biotech Humasite has worked with the FDA and the Ukrainian Ministry of Health to send bioengineered blood vessels to help repair tissue injuries from bomb and gunshot wounds. To tell us about the company and how it's helping in Ukraine is Humasite CEO Laura Nicholson. So I guess the the first and easiest and most obvious question is if you could give me a bit of background on the company. So, yeah, thank you for that. So my name is Laura Nicholson. I'm the CEO and the founder of Humicite. Humicite is a regenerative medicine company based in North Carolina in Research Triangle Park. And the mission of our company is to produce engineered human tissues at commercial scale and where these tissues can be implanted into any human recipient without rejection. Uh, Importantly, we've been in man now for more than 10 years and have implanted our engineered blood vessels into more than 500 patients. So could you tell me about HAVs and how they're created, how they work? Yeah, so human acellular vessels, or HAVs, are the lead uh, product that we're producing with our uh, bioengineering platform. Essentially, the engineered human tissues that Humacyte makes are made from human cells. In fact, Humacyte is really a contraction of human cells. That's where the company's name comes from. So we start with a bank of human vascular cells, and we take a small aliquot out of that bank and expand the cells until we have uh, several billion in hand. We then take those cells and seed them onto a scaffold, which is of the size and shape of the tissue that we want to grow. Importantly, the scaffold is made out of a polymer that's rapidly biodegradable. So after we put the cells onto the scaffold and the cells begin to grow and form a new tissue, the scaffold underneath the cells dissolves. So over a period of two months, while we're growing this new engineered human tissue from scratch, The tissue becomes uh, made of cells and the extracellular matrix proteins that they produce, but the scaffold that we put the cells onto is dissolving. So after two months, what we have is an engineered human tissue that's of the size and shape that we wanted at the first place, um, and no scaffold. So the last step is to take the tissue and then rinse it with decellularization solutions. And what this does is it washes the cells out of the engineered tissue, but it leaves behind the extracellular matrix proteins like collagen that the cells produced. 
Because of this final step, we remove the immunogenicity of the tissue. And that means that it can go into any human recipient without being rejected. What's the uh, source of the cells initially? <clears throat> the initial source of the cell comes from actually uh, organ and tissue donors. So for example, if you are, are an organ donor and your liver goes into one patient and your kidney goes into another patient, there's actually no use for the large blood vessel that's attached to your heart called the aorta. There's no clinical use for that. So over a period of about 10 years, Humocyte partnered with organ procurement organizations. And uh, in more than 700 donors for whom we consented, we obtained the aorta from those donors and then isolated cells from those tissues. Out of those 700 donors, we did a tremendous amount of testing and screening, and we identified a small subset of only about five or six or seven donors, which produce cells that work very effectively in our process and can produce many hundreds of thousands of human acellular vessels. And how do you ensure that you're creating exactly what it is that you need to create? I mean, how is the process in that respect so that you know what you're making out of these cells? Our process for growing batches of engineered human tissues is actually a highly refined and highly engineered process. When we grow a batch of 200 HAVs or human acellular vessels, they're grown in a highly automated bioreactor setting that has very tight control of things like oxygen and glucose and pH and temperature. And that provides a tremendous amount of uniformity to the types of tissues that we grow and at the completion of our process. But in addition to that tight manufacturing control, uh, we also have a, a complete set of assays that we apply to each batch to make sure that the vessels that we produce are of uniform quality. So for example, we take a subset of vessels from every batch and we expose those to destructive testing where we, where we analyze the composition of the vessels. We check their residuals in terms of if there are any cellular remnants left. We check their mechanical properties, et cetera. And then lastly, for vessels that we do not test destructively, but for vessels that remain within the bioreactor and ultimately get shipped to hospitals, we subject every single vessel uh, that we produce to a non-invasive optical scanning method that allows us to look at a, at a microscopic level and really understand the dimensions and the wall thickness and have an idea of the strength of the vessel for every single tissue that we produce. So because of the manufacturing controls on the front end and then the extensive testing on the back end, we have a very high index of confidence that the vessels that are produced by this process are uniform and very high quality. And so what happens to them once they're created? How are they utilized? So each vessel is contained within what we call a bioreactor bag, uh, which is a disposable bag. It's a long, thin construct. It's about 50 centimeters long and about uh, five or six centimeters wide. And each bioreactor bag containing one vessel at the end of the manufacturing process each bioreactor bag is sterilized on the outside surface. It's packaged into a sterile packaging, and then it's shipped to a hospital or clinic where it's stored in the refrigerator until it's needed. When the surgeon uh, needs a vessel for a patient in the operating room, the nurse will get the vessel out of the refrigerator, bring it to the surgeon, open it up. 
the surgeon will cut into the bioreactor bag and then take the engineered human tissue out and sew it into the patient. Because our engineered human tissues have a shelf life of 18 months, this means that we can grow a batch of tissues, ship them to hospitals, and they can remain in storage until a surgeon needs them. So it's a good good that you can have them in situ as opposed to in, in an emergency, they have it right there? Indeed. In fact, we're conducting a phase three trial uh, using our engineered vessels to treat vascular trauma. This is a civilian-based trial, but it's funded uh, by the U.S. Department of Defense because the HAV was named several years ago as a top five priority product for gaining approval, FDA approval by the Defense Department. So yes, at, at our clinical sites in our trauma trial, these vessels are stored and can be immediately available when a trauma victim rolls into the emergency room. And what part of the body can they be suitable for? We've used the engineered vessels in most parts of the body, um, in all of the named arteries in the arms and legs, as well as arteries in the upper chest and in the pelvis. Our vessels have never been used in patients in the neck or the brain or in the heart, but essentially every other suitably sized artery in the body has been uh, treated with the HAV, either for vascular trauma or for some of our other clinical indications, such as uh, patients with kidney failure who need hemodialysis access, and also patients having peripheral arterial disease. So I guess surgeons must be really uh, happy to have this product. Well, a, uh, a good friend of mine who's a, who's a vascular surgeon has said that for a vascular surgeon, having a, having a good vascular conduit on the shelf is sort of like a carpenter having a good piece of wood on the shelf. He views a vascular conduit as being sort of his working material. So a, if a vascular surgeon feels confident about a conduit that he can take off the shelf, he will tend to use it in multiple different configurations. Um, and for multiple different purposes. Absolutely. And, and so where are you at in terms of some of the trials that you've been doing? Well, currently, Humicite is in the latter stages of two phase three trials in two separate indications. As I mentioned, in one indication, uh, we're completing a phase three trial in dialysis access. And that trial is about 95% enrolled. Uh, we expect to complete enrollment in the next few months. And secondly, we're in the late stages of enrollment of a single-arm phase three trial using the HAV and vascular trauma. In that trial, because it's a single-arm trial, we're able to track the results as they come in. And uh, we've been able to show that the HAV has excellent patency. In other words, the blood flow rate through the vessel is excellent at 30 days. And also that the vessel is overall safe and that we've had no instances of rejection and only one instance of infection out of more than 60 patients treated. I think clearly one of the interesting aspects of this is how you've been helping with some of the efforts in Ukraine. I wonder if you could tell me how that came about in the first place. Well, as we all know, the, the Russian Federation invaded Ukraine in February of 2022. About a month later in March, Humicite began receiving requests from several Ukrainian surgeons to see if they could gain access to the HAV to treat war-wounded patients. We've never done clinical trials in Ukraine previously. However, we've done a number of trials uh, in neighboring Poland, and uh, surgeons all talk to each other. And so my sense is that knowledge of the HAV was more broad across Eastern Europe than in just Poland. 
in any event, we worked after March, we worked with the FDA International Office, as well as the Ukrainian Ministry of Health, in order to obtain the appropriate routes and, and procedures and approvals to ship the HAV from our facility in North Carolina to Ukraine. And again, the HAV is not approved for use in, in any jurisdiction. And so this was an investigative product that we're bringing into Ukraine for humanitarian purposes. So we managed to get the product into five frontline hospitals in Ukraine several months later in June of 2022. And since that time, we've treated nine patients, um, most of whom are uh, war injured. And most of those injuries are actually blast injuries and shrapnel injuries. We've also treated some patients with gunshot wounds. And in fact, we've treated a number of patients who've had other types of conduits put in to repair their engineered blood, their blood vessels, whether it's vein or whether it's a synthetic. And several of the patients that we've treated with our HAV actually failed these other conduits. And so the HAV was really a rescue therapy for a patient who was at risk of losing a limb. So, so far uh, in this humanitarian effort, we've had essentially 100% success. We've had 100% restoration of blood flow to limbs. At 30 days, all of the vessels have been patent and uh, we've had no mechanical failures and no infections. We find this really encouraging and kind of extraordinary Obviously, this is a war setting. It's a very austere setting. And in fact, in order to train the surgeons how to use the HAV, we were not able to do this in person. So we, we trained them over Zoom uh, in Ukrainian. And uh, so it wasn't an ideal circumstance. But, but the fact that the HAV is performing well and saving limbs and lives, to me, is very encouraging. Is this an ongoing process? I mean, are you able to help more as, as we go forward? Yes, we've shipped a, a number of HAVs over to Ukraine, uh, which remain in a depot and which remain at these at these several hospitals. And so a number of surgeons from Ukraine have reported on the outcomes of these of the HAV in the wartime setting and at different clinical meetings. And in fact, they plan to continue using the HAV as we go forward. Humicite is also considering at this time adding several of those sites that are really frontline sites uh, in the war effort, adding some of those sites as clinical trial sites for our ongoing clinical trial, which is mostly based in the U.S. right now. How much are you able to, to help? You know, the process for manufacturing these vessels has been something that's been, you know, under study in my laboratory and from some work I initially did since 1995. But we've really worked on industrializing the process over the past five, six, seven years. In our facility in Humicite right now, we have machines, uh, bioreactor machines called Luna 200 machines, which make 200 vessels at a time and which can produce five batches a year. So that means about a thousand vessels per machine. We have eight machines installed right now, which means we can produce about 8,000 vessels per year right now. In addition, in our facility in North Carolina, we have, a, we have room for 40 of these machines. So at peak production in this building alone, we could produce 40,000 vessels per year. But to your question, how much can we help in Ukraine? You know, our, our goal is to be able to help as much as we can. We're certainly not production limited in terms of how many vessels we can ship, but there are significant logistical hurdles to getting a refrigerated product into a war zone. And so there are many aspects 
that impact how many vessels we can we can distribute in Ukraine beyond just our production capacity. And I guess there's also a financial limit. You can't just do this for free for the for, forever. Who's um, helping out on that front? Well, we are doing it for free for now. Certainly, uh, this is a humanitarian effort, and this was, you know, Humicide is in the business of saving limbs and lives. It, that's what we do. And so, when we got this request from the Ukrainian surgeons, we certainly felt like we wanted to honor that. But you're right. I mean, could Humicide afford to send thousands of vessels with no reimbursement to Ukraine for free? No, that's that's probably not a good business move. But certainly, I think we can help with the humanitarian effort, and we can help bring some of these sites into our clinical trial. Based on recent interactions with the FDA, we anticipate filing for approval, filing our biologics licensing application in the middle of 2023. So it would be our hope and anticipation that we would have approval for this product perhaps late 2023 or early 2024. After that point, then we can, of course, uh, obtain reimbursement for the product and the cash flow for the company obviously changes. What are the other next steps that, you, uh, that you're taking? Well, in terms of clinical development, um, we anticipate filing the, the BLA for the trauma indication, as I mentioned, in the middle of next year. However, we also have, as I mentioned, uh, a phase three trial in dialysis access. And so we anticipate filing an amendment to our BLA for the dialysis access indication about a year after we gain approval for the trauma BLA. In addition, we also have several other clinical and preclinical uh, projects in our pipeline. So we have long-term phase two data in peripheral arterial disease, and we're in the process of designing a phase three trial in patients with peripheral arterial disease right now who have severe disease and who are at risk of limb loss. In addition, we have preclinical work going on in primates where we've engineered a smaller diameter version of our HAV that's only three and a half millimeters in diameter. And we're testing that in non-human primates as a coronary artery bypass graft or a heart bypass. Those studies are very active and underway. And uh, we would hope to wrap up those studies that would support a filing to the FDA to go into phase one. We're hoping to wrap up those studies in the next year, year and a half. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover? I'm very proud of Humicite. Uh, Humicite has been... Uh, I, I sometimes like to say an 18-year-old overnight success. Um, we were started 18 years ago in Research Triangle Park, and we were, you know, privately financed for about 16 and a half of those years. Uh, we went public in the middle of 2021 last year. But I will say that during that time, Humicite has really pushed the boundaries on what is possible to do with engineering human tissues, particularly universally implantable tissues that can go into any recipient. And I would submit that we're actually very far ahead of the pack. If you look at other companies in the world who are trying to do what we're doing, all of them are at least a decade behind us. I sort of think of Humicite as being the quiet company that accomplished a lot and uh, has now put a huge distance between us and possible competitors and is really leading the way in regenerative medicine. Next is to an interview I did at BioEurope with the company Transgene. It is a clinical stage biotechnology company focused on designing and developing novel immunotherapeutics. And after spending the first half of our allotted time with the company's chief business officer, Stephen Bloom, talking about hockey, 
we did get to chatting about the company itself. So Transgene is a public biotech company based in Strasbourg, France. About 165 strong, uh, heavy R&D presence, um, clinical uh, manufacturing, uh, business group, executive team. So a company I think that's really becoming a player in the immuno-oncology space. Uh, so we have two platforms. One is oncolytic virus. Uh, one is cancer vaccines. Both are clinical stage and both will be reporting out significant clinical data in the next several months. So two programs on the oncolytic virus side, two on the cancer vaccine side. You know, my role is chief business officer. I've been with the company now for almost 10 months. I've been a sort of a serial biotech guy in oncology for the last 20 years. Uh, after spending the first 18 years of my career or whatever it was at Lilly, in and out of Indianapolis. So I, uh, I find Transgene to be a fascinating sort of diamond in the rough company in the immuno-oncology space because um, if you think about where the field is headed over the next several years, it's really um, improving upon some of the dismal data we have in solid tumors, right? Even the checkpoint inhibitors maybe get you 20, 22% response rate. So um, thinking about our oncolytic virus platform, if we could, you know, combine our delivery system with multiple different kinds of payloads to improve upon current uh, standard of care or think about even other kinds of constructs that might result in better patient outcomes, that's what we're all about. And uh, we think our oncolytic virus platform is uniquely positioned maybe to take advantage of combining several payloads, active payloads in a, in a viral delivery system that gets into the tumor and minimizes uh, systemic exposure to the patient. So that's the virus side. The vaccine side, I think is pretty exciting. Uh, our mantra is extend the remission. Uh, so you figure a patient gets frontline standard of care therapy, they get a response, and the objective is to either hold that response for as long as possible before you need a second line of therapy or a third line of therapy, or you can extend the remission by giving a vaccine, a cancer vaccine, at the time you see asymptomatic relapse, right? So uh, a couple of our studies will look to sort of build on that theory about extending the remission, our 4050 program and our 4001 program. But I mean, with the, the sort of the liquid biopsy, ctDNA, blood testing that you can do right now, you could see asymptomatic relapse before you see symptomatic relapse. So uh, I think our vaccine study, certainly our 4050 study, we have a patient that started to see CA125 creep, right? And then ctDNA fragments showed up. And you give, you know, you give the, uh, the cancer vaccine at that point, which is a neoantigen-specific vaccine per patient, so it's individualized for patients. So you give that vaccine at the point of asymptomatic relapse, and you see the ctDNA and the CA125 go down. And so I think we can change or at least contribute to better cancer care by giving our vaccines at the point of asymptomatic relapse before people 
have symptomatic relapse, and then it's too late. Then you're on to serious second and third line therapy. So that's a very high level sort of summary of you know the company, why I think it's a very exciting time for Transgene, and a little bit of insight into both of our platforms and why they're innovative, at least from our vantage point, but also I think from clinicians and partners. We've had a couple of partnering deals now that have done what I call validation through collaboration. So when companies put down some of their capital on a program, uh, it tells you something. It tells you that they're thinking that there might be something there. So uh, it's not just us talking, it's partners and KOLs and experts working with us as well. So that's sort of the four minute story about what I think is a great company. Sure. You mentioned those vaccines, is that something like you, you give it to somebody once or do you have to keep giving it to them? Well, I, you know, you initially give it to them once, but you can give it to them again. And, uh, you know, I think as we see the program evolve, you know, you would want to be able to maybe re-administer the vaccine to extend that remission as long as you can. So, you know, that would sort of be the objective, yeah. Are you working on trials at the moment? With with multiple uh, shots or yeah, just well, in general? with any of the... Yeah, our 40-50 programs in the clinic, uh, it's a partnership with NEC, which is a Japanese uh, artificial intelligence company, and they have a unique uh, algorithm that allows us to sort of pre-select um, personalized neoantigens per patient or per individual patient. So the, uh, you know, the therapy that the patient is getting is individualized to their, their specific need. And that program is in the clinic. It's phase one. We have outcomes. And now we're thinking about the phase two design and how to co further collaborate with NEC on the phase two design. And then our 4001 program, which is a partnership right now with um, Merck KGAA and Pfizer. They both co-market or co-develop Avelimab. So we have um, a study going on right now that's uh, our 4001 program plus Avelimab versus Avelimab alone. And that gets to the point I was saying earlier about, you know, could we combine our program with standard checkpoint inhibitor care and see if you can get a better outcome. And, and that program should report out data in the next several months. Uh, so the initial monotherapy data was, uh, was interesting in that we had about a 35% response rate with a 5.6 month PFS and uh, we had pretty good safety as it as related to the patients that were in the study. So I, I, I mean, I think we're pretty optimistic that um, the combination could lead to a larger phase two trial and uh, benefit patients that have HPV positive cancers. Busy times then. Very busy on the vaccine side. So I'm sure you're going to ask about the virus side. Yeah. Do you have anything in the clinic on the virus side? I do. You? I'm like Kreskin. <laughs> so uh, we have two programs in the clinic. One is TG6002. Well, let, let me back up and say that um, before I get into the data, the, there, there's probably three ways to administer an oncolytic virus, right? Most companies are doing intratumoral route. Um, fewer companies are doing intravenous route, and then there's IH or, you know, through the hepatic artery delivery. So um, 
you know, the IT space, there's a lot of activity. We have our BT001 program, 50-50 collaboration with BioInven, a Swedish company, where we're combining uh, an oncolytic virus with an anti-CTLA-4 and GM-CSF, uh, phase one study in, in advanced patients with melanoma and other solid tumors. And uh, our data shows, you know, it's safe, it's able to be administered IT, and we actually have one patient, a melanoma patient, that has measurable um, tumor lesion shrinkage. So that's, you know, the IT collaboration with PT001. And we have preclinical data that would, you know, give you a sense that the uh, virus is doing its replication wheel inside the tumor when it's delivered uh, through IT routes. So, so we feel pretty good about the initial IT clinical program with BioInvent. What we're really excited about and what we want to be known for is the intravenous route, right? That's the holy grail of oncolytic viruses. Because if you think about IT, it's anything I can access, right? Can I get a melanoma? Can I get a you know, head and neck cancer tumor? Do I really want to do a lot of radiographically administered viruses into somebody's pancreas? You know, it's very complex and it can be dangerous, right? Um, but if we can administer an IV virus that gets to the tumor because it's designed to get to the tumor, right? Remember these are double and triple deleted viruses that allow you to hone in on the tumor and stay away from the healthy cells, right? So if we can engineer that IV route right into the tumor, minimize the systemic exposure and the neutralizing antibodies and get that replication wheel going inside the tumor where it belongs, it opens up a whole bunch of solid tumor indications for us, right? So IT is kind of narrow, but IV gets you into the intra-abdominal area and all the tumors and solid tumors that exist in your, really your gut or your abdominal areas. We want to do IV because it's innovative, it's leadership, it's bigger addressable market, which is better for the company, but most importantly, it's better for patients. I mean, we really exist to design innovative therapies that that have patients benefit from whatever it is that we do. And we really believe that. I've spent my whole career putting the patient first because everything else falls into place if you think about the patient benefit and what you're designing your trials to do. And, and if we can design double and triple deleted viruses that hone in on tumors in somebody's colon, and then you have, you know, an obscopal effect, you know, which would go after the metastatic lesions as well from that primary tumor, you've got the holy grail of, of delivery here. And, and, and I think the company is really, really focused on the IV route. So that leads me to TG6002, which is our IV product. And the, the trial was designed basically for proof of mechanism. To me, there's four sort of checkboxes for an oncolytic virus. One is it's got to be safe. The second is it's got to replicate in the tumor. The third is you need a, an immune response. And the fourth is you need some activity, right? So with TG6002 was a, a 5FC a 5-FU prodrug. 5-FC was the prodrug. It converted to 5-FU in the tumor after the injection and the honing in on the tumor in this uh, colorectal cancer primary. And uh, we saw safety. 
and replication. We released that data recently at ESMO, so it confirms the first two checkboxes. The trial did not show activity because we had some patient selection uh, issues relative to the kind of patient we ended up recruiting. These were really beat up patients that we got. This was a phase one study. You could only imagine how many times they already saw 5-FU. We're confident that we met the mark of um, safety and replication, and now we have to think about what to do with this study in phase two to build on the immune response and the activity piece that we need to have the whole story for an IV-delivered virus. So we're in the middle of doing that right now as a company. And then there's our AstraZeneca deal, which is um, a five-candidate deal we signed in 2019. Uh, oncolytic virus uh, construct development. AZ already took one option. We have not announced what that construct is. They take it, they take it in-house, they develop it. They paid us $8 million for the, uh, for the option and they have four more programs that they could pull down over the next few years or the next one or two years, whatever their timing and cadence is. But it validates that IV route again. So if you take nothing from this interview on the oncolytic virus side, it's we want to be the market leaders in IV oncolytic virus delivery to cancer patients that have all kinds of solid tumors. And now it's to the subject of antimicrobial resistance, which we had a podcast about not that long ago. 14 European member states wrote to the European Commission recently outlining why they think the EU's proposed policies around antimicrobial resistance are costly, inefficient and will disrupt the market for generic drugs. Anthony McDonnell is the senior policy analyst at the Centre for Global Development and he wrote a blog entry about why he agrees with those 14 countries. So it seemed like a good opportunity to find out more. So the Centre for Global Development is a think tank. Uh, our focus is historically on public goods, and we were set up originally to look at policies that high-income countries and international organisations could improve that would help low- and middle-income countries, and indeed the whole world, to prosper and develop. And I work in the global health team, particularly on the economics of infectious disease, and I lead the Centre's work on antimicrobial resistance. Could you maybe highlight some of the issues when it comes to antimicrobial resistance? Antimicrobial resistance is a major killer in the world. Uh, about one and a quarter million people die directly from it, and another 3.7 million people are estimated to die indirectly or with an antimicrobial resistant infection, but leading to it causing about 5 million people death, 5 million deaths in part. Uh, resistance um, comes from bacteria and other microbes. When they come into contact with antibiotics or the medicines we use to kill them, they evolve ingenious defences to get around them. And these medicines start, are starting to fail in, in increasingly alarming numbers, which both leads to lots of direct deaths um, and also undermines many treatments we use to that antibiotics support, such as cancer care and different types of surgeries. Is the problem getting worse? It's hard to say with certainty because we don't have great surveillance data, but it, it, the levels of resistance rates are definitely getting worse. Uh, we're seeing more and more worrying pathogens. Healthcare systems are getting better, but probably not fast enough to counteract that. 
and it will probably continue to get worse for some time. The last major class of antibiotics that's widely used goes back to the 1970s. Arguably, there's been no new class of antibiotics at all since the late 1980s. And so we, we've got this dearth of innovation. So as, as we lose antibiotics, which is always going to happen because anytime we use them, bacteria are going to come into contact with them. We, we have not come up with adequate or sufficient replacements. So turning from antimicrobial resistance to European resistance. Uh, first, I wonder if you could tell me what the EU is proposing. So the EU is doing a couple of interesting things. First of all, it put out its global health security agenda last week. And in that, they put antimicrobial resistance right at the heart of it. They talk about how they want to play a leadership role in this area. They talk about the need for a pandemic treaty, which is widely agreed, and how antimicrobial resistance should be part of that, which is great. The second thing that they've been working on for a while is, is how to fund antibiotic innovation. And, and so antibiotic market is a bit unusual because we want to protect drugs from overuse. And the more important the drug is, the more we want to protect it. You get this kind of perverse incentive where if you come up with a great drug, we might not need to sell very much of it. And thus it often doesn't pay sufficiently. And so the UK has piloting a scheme to buy antibiotics on on subscription and the US is looking at legislation and the European Union has come up with something called a transferable exclusivity voucher as a possible proposal to deal with this. But some of its member states are unhappy about that. So what's a transferable exclusivity voucher and what's the problem with that? So a transferable exclusivity voucher is essentially you get uh, to add a period of exclusivity, uh, a bit like extending the patent of a drug, of any drug of your choosing, and you can sell this voucher to somebody else and they can add add onto their drug. And these vouchers, depending on the length of the extension, could be very valuable. There are some drugs that have three, four billion dollars a year worth of sales across the European Union. The unhappiness from the member states is there's a sense that maybe the costs, instead of the EU funding the research directly, it's changing the patent system, or I guess the exclusivity system, such that it's free for them, but the cost will be mostly borne by member states. So 80% of healthcare in the European Union is funded either directly by governments or through mandatory insurance policies, which is essentially by government schemes of a different name. Um, and so the worry is that they will push costs down onto them. And there's also a worry a debate about whether this is the most cost-effective way of, of paying for innovation. And some people, uh, myself included, believe that because the voucher are unpredictable in their price and because you essentially have to pay to make it worth two people's while to be involved, the original antibiotic innovator and also the person buying the voucher, that's probably not the most cost-efficient way of incentivizing innovation in the European Union. Is there a risk to the generics market here? Yeah, there is a risk in generics market. So generic companies tend to have to plan one or two years in advance before they enter into a market. They have to own the manufacturing of the new product and there's regulatory requirements for them. And they, they tend to try and time it so they come into market shortly after a patent expires because they can't enter the market before anyway. Uh, now, if they don't know when a patent or when a period of exclusivity is going to expire, it becomes quite difficult for them to make those investments up front because they don't want to be in a situation where they make an investment and then the exclusivity gets extended for a year and they can't do anything for that year. And this will both affect the generics industry for the drugs where vouchers are applied to. It will also affect the generics industry for other drugs uh, because 
uh, the generics companies might not know which drugs the voucher is going to be applied to. Now, one way to get around this would be to make companies declare, say, two years in advance, which products they were going to apply a voucher to. And that would mitigate some of the uncertainty to the generics market. I guess it also raises the question, ultimately, who is this going to fall onto? Is it going to be governments or is it going to be the end patient that ends up having to pay for all of this? So it will absolutely fall both on governments and patients. Now, as I mentioned, patients cover or governments cover about 80% of the health costs in Europe, but that varies hugely by country. And so in, in some countries, patients will absolutely be paying for these medicines. It's also the case that governments can't, for reasonable reasons, afford every treatment possible. And generic treatments are much, much cheaper than uh, ones where there's an exclusivity. And so what you are likely to see happen is that the cost will stay high for the government, which will lead to some poor governments likely not being able to fund that treatment themselves. And that means that patients will continue to not have access to it in the way that they do when it is on patent. And what seems quite unfair about the system to me is that these are not necessarily patients who rely on antibiotics or use antibiotics. It's patients who happen to need whatever the most expensive drug on the market at the time is. And they will take on a huge portion if not the brunt of these costs. Would that potentially then have the capacity to create like a two-tier system where some countries can afford certain drugs and others can't? Well, some countries are much wealthier than others. So the proportion of the healthcare system and the amount of money available to spend on medicine in somewhere like Germany is much, much greater than somewhere like Romania. And so the ability of the German healthcare system to, to cover medicines is greater and a greater array of treatments is available in Germany. And so it's less likely a citizen in Germany will not get access to a drug because it's too expensive. But there are drugs in every country uh, or almost every country that governments won't pay for. Um, and that much more common when it's on, ex- on an market exclusivity. And regardless of which country you're in in Europe, either the government or you, the patients, are going to have to pay for this treatment either way. And so it will fall on the population. There is a certain extent to which that's true anyway. If you if you make direct payments to fund antibiotics, the taxpayer will pay and it will be broadly based by society. So in some ways, I don't mind the costs falling on health systems, but I think it should be done in the most efficient way possible, which personally I don't believe this is, and it shouldn't be done in a way that targets or harms particular patient groups, because that seems unfair. So for the countries that aren't impressed by this, have they come up with any counter proposals or suggestions? So there, there are proposals or ideas put forward by these 14 countries, uh, but none of them have been fully fleshed out. And in a sense, uh, this group of countries led by the Netherlands are saying is that we need to take a step back and and review options. Where they seem to be landing is that they think the European Union's new pandemic preparedness agency, uh, HERA, or HERA, should be the one who funds these vouchers and that it should go directly to the innovators. So instead of countries paying whoever gets the voucher, the EU should pay the the company that does the work. The exact nature of that and how costs might be divided up between the European Union and member states, I think, needs to be further fleshed out in their proposals. But what is, I think, interesting and encouraging is that it 
these countries are generally ones who are very supportive of working on antimicrobial resistance. The Netherlands has one of the lowest antibiotic rates of any high income country, usage rates of any high income country in the world. Um, those other countries that have pushed the AMR agenda very strongly who've signed up to this. And the language in their non-paper is very supportive of the idea of the European Union doing something. So I think it is more of a case of them thinking that we need a better policy and to, to think about this more than it is the case of them kicking things into the long grass. So personally, what do you think that a solution could be? Well, so I think it's great that the European Union is doing something. I think if 14 countries vote against it, the way European the Council of Ministers work is that it won't pass. They have a blocking majority. But I think it's great to see so much enthusiasm from the European Commission to do something. I'm very encouraged by what was in their health security, global health security package that came out last week. And I think the language from these 14 countries is very good. I get the sense that the, the fact that the Pasteur Act, which is a piece of US legislation to fund antibiotic research, is progressing. And the fact that the UK is doing this pilot uh, is encouraging Europe to think more carefully about what its role would be. And I, I think that is encouraging. I don't think that this is the right policy. And so I think it is right to review, hopefully quite quickly, and, and find a new way forward. Uh, Europe's Pandemic Preparedness Agency is only one year old. So a lot of this stuff is very new. Europe didn't do things like this very much before the pandemic. And so the exact nature of it might take time to work out. But I'm hopefully hopeful that they will get to somewhere good. Obviously, it's hard to say, but any potential timelines for this? I, I don't know. So the current timelines were that the European Commission was supposed to submit something to the Council of Ministers in the first quarter of next year. Um, now, given that 14 of the 27 countries in the Council of Ministers are against this, whether they will still go ahead with that plan early next year is not yet clear. Um, and if they do, and the Council of Ministers doesn't change their mind, then the plan is not going to go ahead. How long it takes the European Union to come up with a new plan is is not a fully clear to me. Sometimes these things move very slowly and then very quickly. So the idea of subscription models and pull incentives, uh, as they're often called, have been around for almost a decade. They were very commonly discussed in the UN General Assembly's political declaration in 2016. And we, we saw not a lot of movement from any countries until this year when the UK pilot started. The US Pasteur Act looks like it might go forward. And so if there's a political will there, I think we could hopefully have something happen in six months or a year, but it does require that political will. And as far as the funding goes towards this kind of effort, um, will that be funding for research that's done within the EU? That's a good question. I, I mean, it's, it's fairly diversified. More of it probably takes place in the United States than anywhere else in the world, but that's because more research takes place in the US than anywhere else. The UK has a a very strong biotech industry, as I'm sure you're very aware, and has, does a lot of work on antimicrobials, among other things. But many, many countries have, have research agendas in this space. And it's also worth saying that there's not enough research in this space. So there's something of the order of 800 cancer drugs in clinical trials at the moment, in, uh, while there is about 45, last time I checked, antibiotics in clinical trials. And so we need a healthier pipeline. And, and Personally, I don't think it matters where this is so much as make, you know, if somebody comes up with a new antibiotic, whether they're in London or US or China or Scotland or the whole world has access to that and can use it, 
And so it's about making sure that there's a global pipeline that's healthy enough to get us the treatments that we need. I recently did a podcast on antimicrobial resistance and one of the guests on that show was talking about how difficult it is to get investment in companies that are tackling antimicrobial resistance because new antibiotics aren't that expensive and so it's harder to make much of a profit on them and also with stockpiling it's something that you really don't want to use unless you really have to but clearly you were mentioning cancer earlier on and clearly if you have cancer and you get an infection then you'll need antibiotics. Absolutely yeah I mean antibiotics underpin so much of cancer care because most chemotherapies lower your immune system lots of other care, lots of surgery, we we rely on antibiotics to work as kind of a safety net so that we can do these new or more extensive treatments. And if we lose antibiotics or seriously undermine antibiotics, the risks will become too high for many of these treatments. And the person you're speaking to is absolutely right. The, The market is not there for new antibiotics. And it's because in part because we want to keep new antibiotics safe. And so the volume of sales is very, very low for those new treatments. Um, And that is the problem the European Union is trying to fix. And that is very much a good thing. And I welcome it. We've got things like orphan drug acts and and various equivalents across the world to encourage people to come up with drugs in other areas where the market does not work. And we need something for antibiotics. Most access antibiotics work well against most infection. And then we've got watch and reserve antibiotics, which are more important. And so we try to reduce the use of those. And what we really want is a world where people who have an infection, that a frontline antibiotic treats, get access to that infection. And when somebody has an, an infection that cannot be treated by an access antibiotic, a reserve or a third or fourth line antibiotic is used and that will both treat the patient, but it will also curtail that resistant pathogen that the patient has from spreading across society. And so it's kind of win-win. And and even if we don't use these third or fourth line antibiotics very much, the fact that they can cut out antibiotic resistance to the first line uh, antibiotics kind of keeps those access antibiotics alive. And so it has a tremendous value, which is not reflected in how much they're prescribed. And I don't think we want to change that. I think what we we need to do is to find a way where we reflect the large value that these antibiotics have in society without undermining them by giving them out more than we should. Well, it seems that even if there's disagreement, that at least there's movement in the right direction. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it, it is really encouraging that they are doing a lot of work on this and uh, and hopefully they they find a way forward. Um, it's just in my personal opinion that the proposal they have at the moment is not the best one and, and 14 of the 27 member states agree. But I think there is a lot of encouragement for doing something and that is very welcome. Now it's over to JLL and Travis McCready, who is in beautiful British Columbia at the moment. Hi, Travis. Hey, Jim. I'm recording this podcast from Vancouver, British Columbia, with breathtaking views of mountains ominously shrouded by clouds in the background, a clear blue bay in the foreground, and quite possibly some of the friendliest people on the planet in my surrounds. I'm here on a visit, both to check out the life sciences ecosystem in the city with over 4 million square feet of lab space in planning or under development, 
and to experience firsthand quite possibly the most dynamic and comprehensive life sciences company creator I have ever encountered called Admari Bio Innovations. And uh, spoiler alert, yes, I have agreed to join the board. Uh, but before getting to all of that, let me back up a bit. As we reach the end of 2022, if there's one thing I hope life sciences sector watchers have learned, it's that globally there are now numerous environments that display the characteristics and properties necessary to sustain a vibrant life sciences innovation ecosystem. The practices, infrastructure, and risk capital involved is becoming increasingly democratized, creating possibilities for the spark of innovation wherever you might find great basic research. From the patient perspective, on the one hand, this is great news. Many hands make light, make light work, as the saying goes, and there's still a tremendous amount of work to be done in order to tackle the seemingly bottomless well of cancers metabolic diseases, viruses, and existing and evolving pathogens afflicting human beings. As the number of life sciences ecosystems proliferate, there is, however, another perspective that I've crassly come to think of as the healthy herd problem. The smaller the herd, the easier it is to take care of the herd's overall health when illness strikes. And this year, illness certainly struck. Life sciences IPOs are at a 13-year low, as I discussed last episode, and there have been persistent layoffs in the industry. M&A values have halved, and based on data we're seeing in some markets, the birth rate of new companies has slowed. So is the growth in life sciences innovation environments globally a good thing or a bad thing? And is it sustainable? The answers I find are actually much less interesting than the net result of asking the question itself, which has been environments feverishly attempting to differentiate themselves from one another. Thankfully, no, really thankfully, we rarely hear anymore ecosystems speak of their aspirations to be the, quote, next Kendall Square or to become, quote, the fill-in-the-blank valley. Environments understand and companies seek out ecosystems that are rooted in a place's cultural, historical, or geographical uniqueness. It's that uniqueness which provides an innovation environment its flavor and its edge. In North America, Canada certainly embraces this approach, with each of its major life sciences nodes adopting a very different, uniquely Canadian, hyper-local approach to life sciences ecosystem building. Take, for example, Vancouver. With 4 million square feet of lab buildings in development or planning, on a pre-existing base of only 5.2 million square feet, Vancouver's current growth cycle puts it in class with the likes of Boston in terms of growth on a percentage basis. The main anchor research university, University of British Columbia, is the largest in Canada, nearly twice the enrollment size of University of Toronto, or, uh, thinking about it another way, about the size of Harvard, MIT, Caltech, and Stanford combined. Not surprisingly, UBC also far outstrips other Canadian institutions for federal science research funding by a ratio of about two to one. With these factors in mind, our latest Pan-Canadian Life Sciences report clocks Vancouver as the fastest growing life sciences environment in Canada based on employment. You throw in a new, uh, brand new hospital system under construction, a new public subway line that will connect uh, UBC to downtown, significant private and institutional capital interests, 
and an end-to-end life sciences company creator in the likes of Edmari Bioinnovations, and did I mention devastatingly beautiful views? And what you get is a product, an opportunity, that looks unlike any other. Don't worry, I was just as surprised to learn all of this as you may be. Now, naturally, you can find higher densities of life sciences activity in the U.S. and EMEA. Absolutely. Yes, Canadian venture capital is only a fraction of capital deployed in the U.S. and EMEA. Absolutely. However, there is grand, groundbreaking research taking place in Canada, and the infrastructure, social capital, and venture capital exists in cities like Vancouver to support young upstarts and scaling biotechs so that they can remain Canadian and achieve market success without having to leave to go to the U.S. or EMEA. Tis the season for postmortems, rewinds, and conclusionology. And over the next two weeks, there will be no shortage of articles that redigest and regurgitate all that happened in the life sciences in 2022. The retrospective is important and helpful, particularly given the year's volatile nature. But as I look back over the year, I choose to be inspired by the many emerging life sciences ecosystems developing across the world, providing those who work in the sciences better places to live, work, play, innovate, and improve our health. And by that measure, I think that 2023 is going to be one heck of a year. Till next time, Jim, thanks, and I look forward to speaking with you. Thanks, Travis. Vancouver is definitely a great city, although definitely a very expensive one to live in. Travis McReady is the leader of JLL's Life Science Markets Advisory Practice in the Americas, working closely with the global and scaling life sciences companies, developers, and investors to achieve breakthroughs. He has more than 25 years of experience spearheading successful ventures related to technology and innovation, including as president and CEO of a $1.6 billion life sciences funding agency. And that's it for another week. A couple more podcasts to go before the end of the year, although all the interviews are done for next week, so that's a good sign. And trips are also done for 2022 as well, other than for groceries. So, I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast and that wherever in the world you may be, you have a great week ahead. And join us next time for another Beyond Biotech.